The Late Morning Program with Nam Ras Podcast. Hare Krishna, you are listening to the number one Hare Krishna podcast in the world, the Late Morning Program. I'm here with the wonderful Kaylee Kanana Prabhu. Thank you so much for joining me. Hare Krishna, thank you so much for having me. I've done lifetimes of tapasya just to get here for me. So. <laughs> so for those of you who don't know Kaylee Kanana, he has taken the bhakti musician online by storm. Uh, you might have seen his amazing music. Uh, as well as the amazing content he puts out. Um, and I just wanted to have him on today to talk about his story, talk about his music, and talk about all kinds of wonderful things. I love just sitting down with someone and and picking their brain about their struggles and their journey and their bhakti in general, Krishna consciousness, ISKCON, whatever whatever comes out, but organically. But uh, maybe, uh, uh, Kaylee Kanana, let's start out. Um, how did you come in touch with devotees? Yeah, that's a really good place to start. Um, well, the very beginning, the the first like memory I have of meeting a devotee um, was just being kind of a, a lonely teenager wandering the streets of, uh, of Swansea, which is a place in Wales. Um, for anyone who doesn't know of Wales, it's like a small wet country in the United Kingdom. Beautiful place. I've been there one, uh, twice, I think. Okay, where absolutely, did you go? Absolutely beautiful. I went to uh, Bucking, uh, not Buckingham. Uh, what's that place that the devotees have? That big house, and they do. Oh, um, Burke something. Yeah, it's a retreat center. It, they don't have it anymore. Oh, okay, Buckland but Hall. Buckland Hall. Yeah, I went there, and uh, I didn't want to go like at all. Like I was like, no, I don't want to go, Tulsi. I don't want to go. But and and they forced me to go. And then in the morning when like I woke up and I looked outside. I was like, "This is like the Shire or something." <laughs> it's amazing. So that's, that's the Brecon Beacons. That is um, one of the wonders of the world. So I grew up in a place called Swansea, which right. is um, a very dreary um, urban jungle. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, that's a really beautiful place. Yeah. So yeah, I was walking through Swansea as a moody teenager, and I got stopped by a devotee. Um, and they were dressed as a monk and um, they were making all these like really whack jokes. And uh, I was like, who is this guy? Like, what's he playing at? And he showed me a book. I think it was maybe Sri Ishapanishad or something. And there's this picture in the Ishapanishad of, you know, the journey of the soul through the bodies and um, the, the baby becomes a young man and so on. And that was all that happened really. And I, I went away with that image in my head and just thought that guy was kind of uh, quirky, but he had some cool books. And then maybe like three or four years later, um, basically I was in a jazz band and uh, my I was the, uh, the drummer in the band. And we used to go out busking because we went to New Orleans and we used to see people play jazz music on the street there. And we thought it was very attractive. It's a good way to build an audience, make some money um, and just have a good time. So we did a lot of busking around the UK and we would also go and do like 
gigs and events in all sorts of places in the middle of wrestling arenas and in churches and anywhere really um and it was quite a passionate life you know we would we would play music pretty much all day every day and then in the night we would usually go to some party and then we'd wake up the next day and do it all again and it just so happened that where we lived in wales there was a govinda's restaurant and so we would go busking and then we'd go and take prashadam at this restaurant and speak to some of the devotees there. And that devotee that stopped me those four years ago and made all those whack jokes and showed me the book was there. And I was like, hey, I remember you. And we started speaking and uh, he was like, what are you up to? So I said, well, myself and the band, we've just bought uh, an ambulance. We bought a decommissioned ambulance and we took everything out of it. It had like all of the gizmos and gadgets still on the inside. Oh my gosh. So we completely stripped it and we turned it into a bandwagon. And the plan was we were going to go traveling around Europe playing music and busking. Um, <laughs> anyway, it would have been super stressful. Krishna intervened. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> it was a mad idea. But basically, we didn't realize there was a upstairs to this Govinda's restaurant. There was a whole temple up there. Yeah. And um, I'll show you actually. Hold on. Sure, sure. For those of you who are um, just listening to the audio, he's showing us a picture. Okay, so sorry, I had to go to my altar to get this. Yeah. So um, we saw this flyer. I don't know if you can see it very well. Yeah, yeah. This, yeah, it, yeah. this is the original flyer that was displayed in the window of Govinda's. It's uh, called Feeling Alone Together. It was a talk on Tuesday, the 15th of March by Dave and Rita Swami. Right. And so we were like, at, at that time, us and the myself and the band, we were um, we were experimenting with psychedelic drugs. We were reading into all these different esoteric um, books and religious scriptures. I've got Jewish heritage, so I was looking into the Kabbalah and mm. you know, growing my long um, hair back and everything. Anyway, so we were like a swami. That sounds kind of cool. So we we went. Um, myself and the pianist and the pianist's girlfriend. Mm -hmm. And the next day we were all different people. Really? Yeah. We it, like that talk, just speaking for myself anyway, I was a completely different person the next day after I heard Dave and Rita Swami talk. So from that, um, from that talk about a month later, Wait, hold um, on. Do you remember what it was about what he said or how he said it? Or tell us a little bit about that. That's really intriguing. Yeah. So I used to beat myself up a lot because I couldn't like in this day and age, um, it even says in the Bhagavatam, these Kali Yuga minds, they're very um fickle and it's difficult to focus on something. And I used to get really frustrated, like that I couldn't think clearly about things. So that was one thing I got from the talk, like as soon as I left, suddenly my mind was very peaceful. And mm. so I was like, wow, that's really nice. And the main topic he was talking about was uh, chewing the chewed, this idea of, um, you know, like your parents, they, they try uh, to get pleasure and satisfaction from sex, drugs and rock and roll, and it doesn't work for them. So then they pass it to their 
children and they say, hey, it didn't work for me, but you try, you try the sex, drugs and rock and roll, maybe you'll be happy. And so those kids try and they're not happy. So they pass it down and, and it just doesn't work. And so I think it's a Prabhupada um, analogy, right? Chewing the chewed? Chewing the chewed, yeah. Yeah, Prahlad Maharaj, yeah. Prahlad Maharaj, of course. Yeah. And uh, But he, was, he made it very graphic. He was like, if I take a piece of chewing gum and I start chewing it and I, I hand it to, he pointed at someone in the audience, I hand it to you and then you chew it and you pass it round you know, like eventually like the flavor is just going to completely go. Right. And that's what material life is like. And I was just like, man, that is profound. You know, that, that blew my mind. So, um, yeah, the, the next day I, it was really like a tangible enlightenment kind of feeling. I was like, damn, like life suffering and I really need to do something. Yeah. So yeah, within about a month or two months time, uh, myself, the pianist and the bass player, um, and the bass player's girlfriend all moved into the ashram. What? Um, so in Swansea, in Swansea. Yeah. Wow. Um, and, uh, but before that, the, one of the band members got a Bhagavad Gita in London and brought it back to Wales and started reading it so we had some idea and we were taking prashadam in govindas but that talk really changed a lot for us um so yeah like all of a sudden um that's interesting that it was all together like all at the same time all of you was there not one person who was like well i'm not really sure about this i think that there were degrees like um yeah the the pianist's brother he joined a little bit later he really mm. committed but um but yeah how was your ashram experience um for me it was like uh i like this this word crucible mm. you know like a, a crucible it's um it's like, it's like something like, they make uh they they melt metal inside it and it's it gets really hot inside exactly yeah and so um, I think it like holds that molten metal in place right. long enough for it to cool down and become like a tool. Right. And so <laughs> I don't know if you know, um, the, the temple president in Wales, he's called Tarakanath Prabhu. He's an incredible person. He was like my, my first spiritual father. He used to work in the mines in the Welsh valleys and, uh, he's like wow. a, a really like well-built guy and tattoos and really strong Welsh accent. Mm -hmm. And you'd see him and you wouldn't expect him to be a saintly person by, right. you know, but he, he's such a saint. And uh, I spoke to him, you know, about moving into the ashram, but I, I wasn't sure myself. And he said, well, just try a year and then we can have a meeting after that year and see how it goes. And I was like, oh, I'm really not sure. It's like, it's quite a big jump. Like I'm going to have to give up you know, my girlfriend and my family and, um, you know, my, my band and all of my friends and my life, basically, it's a big thing. And he said, just, just try it. We'll have a meeting after a year. And then we, that meeting never happened. So after five years, I was like, okay, <laughs> we should talk about this, you know, five years. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Um, so it, it was, it was a crucible, but 
for me, it was always something that I felt like I wanted to graduate from. Um, Whereas the other bandmates um, are both brahmacharis now. One of them's actually, um, so one of them went to live in the community in New Zealand um, and the other is still in Wales. And uh, the ex-partner of the one that went to New Zealand is now married to the Sankratan leader in Wales. Wow. And, uh, so, yeah, all like super serious devotees, basically. But I think it's because we used to spend so much time together yeah. that, you know, when we found something of value, we all really took to it at the same time. Um, I like what you said about um, that you felt like this is what something that you would graduate from. I don't mm-hmm. think people think like that so much because it's it's like okay it's like they try to kind of move up in the in the ladder for so to say in the brahmachari life like okay then you got more responsibilities and then you get the respect and things like that so you felt like okay you were going to eventually do something else right yeah I also felt uh this institutional pressure I guess which is just kind of natural Mm-hmm. um like that. to stay or to or to leave to, to stay yeah to stay, um right. because i think whether it's it's explicit or it's subtle there's this real like prestige about you know wearing saffron and like being right. a brahmachari and it's yes. like almost this feeling of like you're a brahmachari or you're in maya it was like right. <laughs> one, one of the others no between yeah so i kind of felt that and um and i i didn't like it so much i I couldn't resonate with it yeah um but your but your ashram experience like in those five years tell us a little bit about like what you did and how you was it always like ecstatic and blissful or were there also times where you're like maybe you know two years is too much or like how did you get to five years yeah the so by the time I joined the ashram, I was completely materially exhausted. Like there was, there was no other avenue of, of anything I wanted to pursue. Like I was ready to just, yeah, give everything up basically. Although I was, I was, uh, apprehensive too, but yeah, the first, the first year or so was just so epic. I basically moved into the ashram and then we went out on this this thing that all the devotees were calling it, this Prabhupad marathon. Right. Um, so probably like two weeks after I moved in, I just passed my driving test and I'd never driven on the motorway before. And uh, the Sankatan leader was like, right, you guys have got to drive from Swansea to from Cardiff to Oxford. It's like a six hour drive all on the motorway. And so it was, it was myself driving with like four brahmacharis in the back. And we just went, went away for a week and they taught me how to distribute books. Um, and it was like the most ecstatic thing in the world and just such a, such a ridiculous experience to stop random people who like really don't want anything to do with you and try and convince them of a philosophy and teach them about a book that you haven't even read yourself all the way through yet and <laughs> ask them for money for that as well. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah, but I was like, this is just so much fun. And then 
after a week or so, we'd move back into the, we'd go back to the ashram. Um, you know, we'd have like a Sunday feast and ecstatic kirtans and everything. And um, it all happened so quickly. I didn't even realize that my whole life had flipped upside down. Mm. Like I went from going to bed at four in the morning to waking up at four in the morning. I went from having super long hair to no hair at all. I went from um, having a girlfriend to being a strict celibate, you know, like wow. everything had changed, but I, I didn't even, I didn't affirm it. I didn't even realize it because it, I was just like really just thrown into the, the association of all these nice boys in the ashram and just like, yeah, it just felt like a really strong brotherhood and learning all of these new things and new skills. And yeah. What was your parents' attitude? So they, they were really scared that, um, I was joining a cult mm. and, uh, I think that's a common thing, no? Yeah, that's common. Very common. Yeah. It's a common thing. Um, the, the interesting experience I had was I knew Krishna consciousness was the best thing that anyone could do with their life. Like even by adopting 1% of Krishna consciousness into your life, you'll you'll have some benefit. So I was trying to drag them all along and be like, you should be chanting Japa and, you know, telling my mum she's in Maya and, um, you know, like it just, it doesn't work. You can't, <laughs> you, you can't convince people like that. Yeah. Um, so instead, actually, before I moved into the ashram in those few weeks before I started trying to replicate the food I was eating in Govinda's so every day I would cook them like a Maha feast, like a vegetarian feast. I would offer it all. Um, I, I make a point of like chanting the, the, the prayers and the mantras in the kitchen, um, and ringing the bell really loudly. And, you know, mm -hmm. so they were having like this Maha Prashad feast every day for weeks and weeks before I moved into the temple, they were still a bit dubious, but, um, but yeah. Now, you know, but like both of my parents, they're not um, sadhakas at all, but they accept like, yeah, okay, I guess Krishna's probably God. And, you know, they're both vegetarian and, you know, they're uh, very, through, very... Through your, through your influence, they became vegetarian. Yeah. Wow. So that was really nice. And, um, and yeah, we can have really deep chats and... Uh, yeah, I see I you post some things about your like pictures or something of your parents. They seem really cool. Like hips, they're, kind of. They're super cool. They're very, <laughs> um, you know, everyone says my family are crazy, you know, um, <laughs> and everyone says that, but my family really are crazy. Have you seen, <laughs> um, have you seen Meet the Fockers at all? Yeah, yeah, I have. It's like that, but in real life. <laughs> That's a funny one. Yeah. Um, so you're, so you, so you're ashram for five years, uh, doing book distribution. Um, that was your first experience of book distribution. And then did you continue doing that like throughout? Yeah, we, we did a whole, a whole marathon and, um, a marathon in the UK is, so basically you, you travel around the UK, you, uh, wake up at, you know, four in the morning, you chant. 16 rounds, two hours. Um, you do a little morning program. We used to have steamies. So we'd, we'd, um, <laughs> we'd take a steamer into these little hotel rooms that we'd stay in and just like 
stink the place out with vegetables and rice basically all right um so so that would be our breakfast and then we'd go out onto the street but this is winter you know so we're out there like 8 p.m 8 8 a.m every day and it's like freezing cold and we'd stay out for like at least i don't know nine ten hours um and also it's christmas so everyone's shopping so it's super busy and you just you do that for like two months straight Wow. So then we had a, a festival to celebrate it, at, you know, in January. And then I asked like, okay, cool. So what, what now, you know, like what's next, what's the next frontier? And they were just like more book distribution. And I was like, are you serious? <laughs> like, um, I thought that, I thought that that was just like a special thing. Yeah. But no, um, they were serious. So I, I that was my main priority for for those years just um day in day out every week every month just going out traveling around and trying to I think that's so fascinating what what makes it that you could do that for 2 months like every day like i did i i lived in the ashram and i did a i did like a i did like two summer marathons and maybe like three christmas marathons but eight hours, eight to 10 hours, like from early morning to like, and then traveling on top of it and stay, your staying condition is not like, we were just going back to the temple and then going out, you know, New York city. So it's like that, but I understand there's like the enthusiasm of everyone, but you're just traveling with like a few devotees and like, how does that, how, where's the enthusiasm of that come from? I just don't, I can't get my mind around that. I, I don't really know either, but, um, you know, there are a few stories that stick out to me. Um, may, could I share one with you? Please, please share both of them. Yeah. Um, there's one story that I, I think of kind of often. So uh, I was in a place called Bath and there's a long, there's a long strip um, in the city center that kind of goes uphill. Bath is like a super nice place. It, it yeah, looks like a, an old like Roman city you know yeah it's all great. these cobblestones and everything but yeah there's loads of shops there and it was mid-december so everyone's like shopping for christmas like anything and i was standing at the top of this hill and uh you know i, I spotted this guy who had um he had bags all the way up both arms and he it looked like you know he was about to drop um Anyway, so I, I did my my lines and I, I got him to stop. Hey, I'm a traveling monk and, uh, you know, I, I don't want to take too much of a time, but we're just trying to spread some love. It's Christmas and have you got a moment, blah, blah, blah. So he stopped and I started talking to him. I was like, man, you look like you've done a lot of shopping today. How much have you spent? And I can't remember what he said, you know, in the thousands, he'd really gone all out. And I was like, wow, you know, you've, you've really spent a lot. And... Uh, I, I showed him the Bhagavad Gita and I showed him that picture that I was shown of the soul um, traveling through, you know, uh, through the, the body as we grow. And I started explaining it a little bit and he started crying, like not just a little tear, not just like a singular tear, like weeping. So this is, this is like a strange situation. I'm, I'm like a monk with the Bhagavad Gita, this is like a 40, 50 year old grown man 
spent thousands of pounds on shopping and I'm just standing there amongst hundreds of people rushing past and he's weeping his eyes out. And I'm like, what's, what's going on? Like, I'm so sorry. Did I say something to upset you? Um, anyway, it turned out his son who was like 14 had passed away really recently, maybe like two, three weeks prior. Oh my God. And he was explaining that he, he was shopping so much to basically try and fill a hole in his heart, you know? Um, and he was saying like, my son's gone, but at least maybe I can show my wife a good time and, and my daughter as well. And, um, but really he was just like, yeah, you could tell he was just super, you know, um, disturbed. Anyway, so I ended up, I kind of found the courage to speak a little bit more about the Bhagavad Gita. And uh, I started throwing different verses at him. And we were talking about consciousness. We were talking about the soul is beyond the body and the mind and so on. Um, and he didn't say a word. I spoke for maybe like 10, 15 minutes straight. Wow. He looked at me. He dropped all of his bags and he embraced me, like, like gave me a bear hug. And I was just like, this is too much. Like, I've just got this, this grown man hugging and weeping me in the middle of this really busy street. Right. Um, anyway, and he was like, look, everything else I've bought today is absolute crap compared to this book that you've just spoken to me about. Wow. He said, all of the money I have left is 40 pounds. That's all I have left. I'm going to give it to you. I'm going to take this book and I'm going to, you know, take it home. So he put it in one of his bags and, and, uh, walked away. And I just remember how, how vivid it was like standing at the top of that busy high street after having this exchange. And there's nothing quite like that feeling of having impacted someone's life in a profound way. And like one experience like that is probably enough to give you enthusiasm to go for two months. Totally. Totally. But, yeah. but this would happen often, like many different experiences like this. And yeah, it's like, it's this feeling of um, just, just purpose, you know? Yeah. I wasn't pure, but I had purpose. And I think I was trying to use that purpose to leverage some purity, you know? Totally. You're the, you're the, the representative of the parampara, the philosophy, Krishna, and kind of connecting someone with that energy. That's so important. And I think, you know, people are looking for it, but it's, and they don't know where to find it. You know, they'll try to find it in, you know, like that man was filling the void with whatever shopping or things like that. But um, when, when someone came with, with the truth that kind of felt like he got consoled in a sort of way, then that's mm. so that's so valuable that that explains why you know devotees do i mean i had i had certain experience not to that extent i i would say but that's like that's enough i see i feel for devotees to continue doing it and you just continued getting those similar little miracles right mm -hmm. in, in book distribution do you think do you, some devotees say that it's it's uh people don't read books anymore or you know people kind of critical of 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 the, the pro proselytizing and going just on the street and meeting strangers and things. What do you feel about that? Um, I think it's a load of crap. I think 
book description. <laughs> it's, it, it's the the best preaching you can do if you want to like um, share Krishna consciousness. Really? So, for instance, um, when I first, I, so I moved from Wales to London after I left the ashram, yeah. and we started trying to set up this preaching center in central central London, um, and uh, we called it Studio One Hundred Eight. And it was built on um, a model that uh, my Gurudev Devamrita Swami uses in New Zealand. Um, and it's this like super simple but really effective um, outreach model where, you know, it's not a temple, it's an it's a outreach center. Um, and it's like a simple program, you know, you have like a short kirtan. Um, you have a talk and a longer kirtan and then prashadam and people talk over prashadam and yeah, they, they pack this place out with, with travelers and newcomers, like, you know, 50 to a hundred people, every program week after week. And they probably make like about 20, 21 devotees a year. And they've been doing that consecutively, consecutively for like 20 years. So 80% of the people who come to those programs have met a, a book distributor. 80%? Yeah. Wow. More than Instagram or Facebook or paid ads or, you know, whatever it is. Right. Um, I guess it's that personal, that personal touch of meeting someone like, oh, this is a monk and they're practicing what they're talking about. It's not just I'm looking at a post on Facebook or Instagram, but like that – it, that personal touch is not going away like that. It's, it's, it's still super alive and it's still super important to people from what you're talking about. 20 yeah. people a year. That's like a amazing statistic. And is that it? And, and, it, and, and I understand Maharaj has these all over the world practically, right? Yeah. I think that's his ambition. Um, it's just, it's difficult because everyone, feels like their way is the best way which is which is fine because it's nice to have different flavors you know sure sure yeah um but uh but yeah it's it's proven to be a, a really effective model mm -hmm. and so you I think yeah continue sorry I, just... I was just gonna say that that personal touch is super important because yeah you know if you're doing book distribution they're not buying the book they're buying you right you know so right that the book is secondary that they get home and they start reading about the four regs and they're like, ah, oh, he tricked me. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I think follow-up is also important. I, I know they do that in the UK and also other places they started like, like back in the seventies, I don't think anyone really did that, but now like they're, they're seeing the importance of, okay, getting the person's contact info and kind of reeling them into what studio 108 or another like loft program or something, and then developing that, cultivating that relationship. Super important also. Yeah. Yeah. People, people are lonely, you know, that's everyone's biggest secret. Um, yeah. we, people just want friends, you know? Yeah. That's, so, that's yeah. the, that's the main thing you make friends, uh, devotees make friends with other people just people and then they become devotees that's how it happens i feel so mm -hmm. for five years so you did book distribution what other services or what other locations where we're always there in swansea um no well the the main um bulk of the devotees moved to cardiff which is the capital in wales 
So we used to travel a lot, but um, why did all of them move from there? Just because it's a more happening place. I see. Um, yeah, Swansea's a bit of a. It's. I think the the poet Dylan Thomas, who comes from Swansea, he called it the graveyard of ambition. <laughs> Didn't someone say that about Alachua too? Yeah, maybe. I haven't been to Alachua, but <laughs> I, no, nothing against Alachua. But it's like a very. It's like a. It's like a great. Lots of devotees there. Like, but if you have some kind of ambition to do some kind of something outside. And then when you go there and it's like, so it's like such a happening place for devotees. So then that kind of like takes the backseat and now you're, you know, in the community of devotees doing their thing. So yeah, not, not it's a Lacho, but yeah, sorry. <laughs> Cardiff. Yeah. Cardiff. Yeah. Um, so yeah, the book distribution thing was the main thing, but um, you know, it was also really nice because we were trying to open a new restaurant. So we opened uh, uh, Atma cafe and um I would, you know, try and use some of my skills in service. So, you know, um, we started to, you know, make the cafe a little bit nicer, a little bit more trendy. I would um, start hosting programs and networking with people and, uh, you know, all of that kind of stuff. But there'd always be some random mission as well. Like the cafe we opened was um, an Ahimsa cafe. So to get all of our hymns and milk we had to go to rutland in leicester which is like a six or seven hour drive um wow. and we'd have to do these things at like mad times you know you're you're there like loading what felt like a ton of milk into the back of some dodgy brahmachari car at like half two in the morning six hours away from where you live oh my god and it's like i didn't sign up for this you know <laughs> uh but yeah there'd always be some like far out event going on mm -hmm. um and then what transition what was your transition out of the ashram like yeah that was interesting i so i went from uh, saffron into white and i was all ready to kind of go into my new life and then the pandemic happened oh right so literally just before i left um it was lockdown and I love it when Krishna does that. He's always got like um, such mischievous plans for your life, you know. So uh, anyway, it was it was lockdown. So I ended up staying at the temple for another six months and helping with a food for life program there. Um, but I still had this desire, this real big desire to start pursuing like my creative life. Mm -hmm. Um so I said, look, I'm happy to stay and help with the food for life thing, but I'm going to set up a studio upstairs in the temple. So I had this, just this little room that was uh, like two floors up and it was kind of next to the main road. So you'd hear the sirens going past and all this stuff. And um, I set up a, a desk and some plants and got some instruments in there. And so my life for those like six months was, you know, wake up, do my sadhana, um, help with food for life, washing these like pots that were twice the size of myself and, and packing rice into thousands of tubs to, you know, send out to people that were struggling in the pandemic. Right. And then I would get back and spend the, the evening in my little studio 
and uh, from like eight until you know sometimes super late like 12 one in the morning i just be there like writing songs like relearning instruments um making little videos and i just started sharing them online and it got to the point where i was like you know this is really my my dharma like i'm really called to do this and uh when things started to chill out a little bit more i i moved back home but it was still lockdown so then i you know I was in the same situation, but in my parents' house. So I set up my little studio in in that room. In Swansea. In Swansea. But it was different. It was different in Amras because, uh, you know, when you're in the ashram, you, there's no hiding. There's no hiding from anyone. Like, right, right. It's the most purifying place to be because, oh, no. yeah you're you're just constantly around people but now i had my own space mm. and so all of these desires that i thought i'd worked on and suppressed and you know all of these anartas started coming up i started thinking about all of the you know wisdom that i'd been studying for the last few years and um you know i started to find this darkness within me that i i thought i dealt with and i didn't know was there but it you know, I'd basically just pushed it down when I. Mm. So uh, that was a, that was an interesting experience. Now I was in my parents' house and um, on my own, and just forced to. Oh, did I? Did we lose you? No, you're still. Your audio is still there. You just. Uh... Your uh, video just paused for a while, but you're, you're, I can still hear you. Okay. Sorry. Um, but yeah, so anyway, all this yeah. stuff started coming up and yeah, and it was, it was simultaneously a curse and a blessing. Cause it was like, it was intense. It was like this purging, this metaphysical purging of all these anartas and like disgusting stuff. Mm -hmm. But the only way I could deal with that was, um, creatively, you know, and, uh, so that saved my life, basically having that space to like be creative and just kind of um, alchemize all of those like emotions and all of those lessons that I'd learned in the ashram. I feel like that's a phenomena that devotees go through when they join the ashram. It's like that. It's like riding that wave of enthusiasm in the beginning. And then as things go on, okay, things come up, but we're amongst the devotees and you're with the, you're, you're in Sadhu Sangha. So there's like, there's like that pushing down, like you were saying of, of certain desires and things. And then when, when they leave, when they leave the ashram, then those things come back because you're not amongst devotees all the time anymore. And you're kind of more by yourself. And did you feel like, did you feel there were devotees from the ashram that you could rely on rely on and be like hey this is you know i'm i'm, I'm struggling with this or I'm, I'm working with this or was it like okay you 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 left the ashram and now those relationships were kind of like left behind did you kind of take them with you is, is what i'm asking yeah in in a way i did and i didn't um interesting but the funny thing about being in in that like space um i think when I was there, there were like 12, 15 of us all in Saffron. Mm -hmm. um, and it's funny because 
kind of everyone is looking at each other and thinking that they're the only one that has problems. Right. You know? So right. actually what I discovered when I, I left the ashram is um, some of the the guys started ringing me and I was talking to them and they're like, how's it going and so on. And, you know, they started saying, can I tell you something in confidence? Like I'm really struggling with this or that, or, but please don't like, don't tell anyone, anyone else or. Right. But, um, you know, I was speaking to like, you know, four, five, six of these boys and they were all saying the same thing, you know, wow. but, but saying like, yeah, it's, it's just a funny situation. Like, um, everyone's even in the ashram you think this hugely spiritual you know community um and environment you think everyone must be super pure and you know and peaceful and have all their their stuff together yeah but it's not true everyone's struggling with the same kind of stuff um uh, yeah devotees i think it's gone uh we need to have better transition better ways of transitioning out of the ashram because you know it's kind of like when you're in the ashram you're an asset to the to the to the community to the temple but then when you leave you're seen as kind of like a not an asset anymore and now you're you're like we were saying it's like you're devotee and then you're maya hmm. but most 99% of devotees do leave the ashram so it's it behooves the the leaders of the temple to retain these devotees and help them. Okay. You're eventually going to move out 99% out of, you know, 12, 15 of you, like all, mostly all of you will be leaving and moving out. So how to keep devotees within the community, how to help them transition out, how to help whatever things they might be struggling with outside of the ashram and, um, and keeping them. That's something I, I feel really strongly about that ISKCON should should uh, devote time to. I, and I know I know devotees do that on a like an individual temple basis. I'm sure. How was your leadership? If you're like you were talking about that temple president who you felt was very saintly and things. So was there like was there like because some people have really horrible experiences leaving the ashram, and so it seems like yours was was it better? Yeah, I th I think it was um, it was really good. I didn't feel so much pressure from anyone else. Um, yeah. I felt a little bit of shame, but I think that was coming from myself because it was just this feeling of like, uh, I failed or, you know, right. whatever it is. Like, um, right. I'm not the saint that I thought I was. <laughs> and, um, but yeah, I know a few people have really difficult, um, a difficult time. Yeah. And I just think like, what what I can see happening for for the Hare Krishna movement more and more is that it's perhaps growing into um, to be less like institutional and more community. You know, mm. um, yeah, I, I I can see like pockets of really strong communities popping up all over the world, and still very much integrated into the. Um, into the the institution and you know still following the the principles and still living by the philosophy but the yeah the the foundation of everything that they do is more of a community basis and that's something i was really uh craving as well um 
like like we said before we all just want friends and we all want to fit in and uh, yeah it it takes a special person to just sit in a room by themselves all day every day reading the Srimad Bhagavatam chanting their rounds and contemplating their ever diminishing navel you know it's like it's mad <laughs> we need right. friends we need things to do we need projects we need you know some we need support we need people we can turn to and we need to express ourselves with uh, authenticity and integrity and um and sometimes like institutions can't provide that you know um, yeah so yeah it's it's interesting and that was my feeling i kind of isolated myself and which was also you know part of the kind of partly due to the pandemic but also something i really wanted because i i just needed to focus and reflect um and yeah. then yeah move move on which i've when done you said when you said that you um in your darker times you were helped by your creativity and expressing that can you talk a little bit about that what was it about creativity like when i think when i think about that i'm i mean i'm i'm creative in some sort of ways but you're like very musical and was it that was the music that helped you and how how did that happen yeah i well one thing was i just i wanted to revisit the music thing yeah um because it was kind of put in the back burner as a brahmachari yeah i i kind of gave it up apart from the occasional kirtan here and there um when we weren't out doing books but yeah i um i really wanted to revisit that and i knew i i kind of wanted a future in that somehow but it took me quite a few months to accept that um yeah because I didn't want to go back to the sex, drugs, and rock and roll kind of way. So I couldn't yet see how I could do, you know, how I could live creatively, how I could live musically, and maybe even make that a profession um, and have some spiritual integrity, you know? Mm. Um, so that was unclear. But what was clear to me was that I just needed to express these things. Otherwise, they would like eat me alive. Um, so I just started like writing a lot, composing music and, and, um, just coming up with little things here and there. Um, and it just snowboarded and snowboard and snowboard. And yeah, you know, there was like probably a, there was a six or seven month period where I was writing, you know, two songs a day. Wow. Um, and just like. Yeah, it was it was super prolific, and some of them were very. Um, some of these songs were like very personal and honest, and some of them were a bit more ambiguous. Some of them were directly taken from Shastra. Some of them were, you know, just uh, just random things. But yeah, like yeah, you know, like j just. I would feel I would get inspired also by other devotees that I'd see online doing similar things creatively. And I was mm -hmm. thinking, how can I do that? But in my own way, um, anyway, and you started collaborating with devotees, right? Online. Yeah. Yeah. That was really, um, that, that opportunity that I'd found when I moved out the ashram to connect with people on the internet was amazing. Like, yeah 
probably, you know, 50% of my friends now are like, that I consider good friends, I've never even met, you know, right. <laughs> um, <laughs> right. which is madness. It, like the internet's really wonderful, but it's also, uh, it can be a bit strange. Yeah. But yeah, I, I actually, uh, when I, the first day I got back, maybe like the first hour I was um, back at home, I joined a Zoom call with a group called the Creative Collective. And this group had, um, it had Jai Jagannath Prabhu on it. It had um, Leela Brindavan and Yamuna Bihari and Ananda Murari and Gala Del Sol, who's in Colombia. Um, and Mina, I can't, I don't know her name. Mani Manjuri, I think. Manjuri. Yeah. Um, anyway, all of these like super cool devotees that I'd been admiring from a distance for, for a right. few years. And uh, so we started collaborating together and doing different things. And it was really fun. We'd set ourselves different tasks. And I was like, wow, like you can be a devotee and you can be creative. And you don't have to feel bad about it. I was like, right. this is great, you know? Yeah. And then, yeah, that did, just, you, did you feel bad about it previously? I, I did because it was like, you know, if you're not, um, if you're not reading or chanting or taking prasadam or, or selling someone a book, then, you know, what are you doing Prabhu kind of that, right. that's, that's how I felt, you know? <laughs> um, so yeah, it was, it was a really encouraging time and, uh, I also just started like talking to all sorts of different people online. Um, and there's such a, a vast like talent out there in the devotee world, um, mm -hmm. all over the world, you know? And the thing that inspired me the most is not only are there great musicians and kirtaniyas and writers and animators and artists and, you know, but a lot of these devotees that were inspiring me, they had Krishna as well. You know, they had like a substance to what they were doing. It wasn't just some vacuous, um, you know, artistic rubbish. It's like, you know, that I, I could see Krishna in what they were doing. And I thought, how do I do that? You know, that's what I want to do. Like you saw, okay, there is a place previously there. Okay. Uh, chanting and giving people books and things those are like maybe directly krishna conscious activities that you feel someone has said if you're not doing this then you're in maya but now meeting devotees who are creative but in in their creativity they're like very krishna conscious mm. seat they have a like you said a substance and this glorification of krishna in using their creativity is what attracted you to be like okay wow this can be done and i want to be I want to be doing that. Yeah, completely. Um, I started to realize how Krishna wasn't um, exclusively the claim of ISKCON, but that, um, you know, Krishna can be found in other, you know, religions. It, Krishna right. can be found in, um, in nature. Krishna can be found in pop songs. Krishna can be found everywhere, you know? Right. Um, cause it's, you know, it's not dependent on, on the thing that you're experiencing, but it's dependent on your consciousness that allows you to experience 
something as divine or mundane. Wonderful. Yeah. I don't know if that makes sense, but um, no, it does. No, it totally makes sense. I've been having this thought also um, kind of like breaking the barriers of, of what I've grew up grown up with and breaking those barriers and opening your, your mind up becoming like what they describe Prabhupada as so much like very broad minded, mm. or like really, really advanced devotees we hear of, like they're not, you know, thinking that, oh, Krishna is only here, or, but seeing, going to other places and saying, okay, my Lord is, is here. Like, just like, um, what's the analogy? Like the dog who sees his master, even though he's wearing different clothes or whatever he sees, it's, it's his master. He sees him other places. And that, that's such a, a beautiful, um, way to see it, uh, just to see Krishna in different places. I love that. Yeah. And you know, there were also literatures that were being recommended to me um, that weren't like Prabhupada's books, but were speaking to me and articulating things in a way that I hadn't heard before and that I found really helpful. And I, yeah. it was cool then, you know, because I, I had a paradigm, you know, I had this like Krishna lens that I was seeing everything through. Mm. Um, but you that's know, what your foundation was. Exactly. And, and that's what I always wanted, like, um, before I, I really committed to like taking up Bhakti seriously, like I said, you know, I was studying all these different esoteric things and spiritual scriptures, but I couldn't quite see how they linked, you know, mm. and that's something I find Krishna consciousness does. It, it gives you a, a lens through which you can understand everything else and put it all into context. Right. Um, I love uh, someone who I forgot who described it, but like the guru, they don't tell you what uh, they don't tell you um, what to think. They tell you how to think. Hmm. Like, don't think, okay, don't think like this, this is this, but whatever situation you come across, see it like this. That's what the guru's role is. I love that a lot because, or else it makes it seem like, the philosophy is very narrow-minded and it's very uh, dogmatic, but actually it's just teaching you how to see the world and how to see situations and people and things. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent because we have to remain, um, we have to remain independent in some way or another, you know, yeah. in our thinking anyway, we can't just, uh, we can't just blindly follow and, and believe everything that we hear. Um, even when it comes to accepting a guru, you know, it said like, we should really scrutinize and we should really like, you know, observe that, that person for, you know, perhaps like maybe a year before mm -hmm. you, you decide, yeah, I'm going to dedicate myself to, to accepting guidance from this person. Yeah. It's um, not just the guru scrutinizes or, or monitors the prospective disciple, but all the way around is very important also. Yeah. Yeah, hundred percent. It shouldn't be done just out of um, being a doubting Thomas, but right. you know, if you're sincerely inquiring, then yes. yeah, yes. So you felt so this creative part. I, I want to talk a little bit about creativity in the sense of um, what what about creativity in your life do you feel was um, made your creativity Krishna conscious. Mm. That makes sense. Yeah, that's a good question. 
Sorry to put you on the spot. I didn't send you these. These are not, these are not staged questions, everyone. This is all off the cuff. Um, so the question is like, what, what about my creativity makes it kind of Krishna conscious? Is that what you're saying? Yeah. I mean, I could tell you how I feel about it, but I'd like mm -hmm. to hear from you. Well, really more and more as I, as I mature or I, as I progress through life, I see how um, intention is really important in everything you do. Mm. Um, so one thing I've been thinking about recently is center, like um, having a center. So, you know, you can think some people are pleasure centered. Some people are work centered. Everything revolves around their job. Some people are spouse centered. You know, if their partner starts freaking out, then they freak out. You know, if they want to do something, but their partner says no, then they'll follow their partner. Right. Um, some people are self-centered, you know, just like <laughs> egotistical. Um, but what I've tried to do and what I'm trying to do is, is be like, have Krishna as the center and make my life Krishna centric, you know? Right. So I think when you do that and when you have a strong intention, you know, um, it's apparent and the form become secondary to the substance um does that make sense yeah intention super important yeah yeah so you're saying you're, if your intention is krishna krishna centered krishna conscious uh then whatever creative things come out of that they're going to be expressed as something glorifying krishna or krishna conscious yeah naturally because um I see creativity as just a vehicle for intention, basically. Wow, I like that. Yeah, that that's that's how I I feel. Kind of um, kirtan can be done, you know, with like really complex raga melodies, or it can be done, you know, as a like in a reggae kind of way, or you know, it can be done just by clapping your hands, or you can have a whole band, but. Um, really it's like it's the intention behind it mm. and i think even maybe back to sedanta saraswati um or perhaps back to vinod Thakur, sometimes they'd make a point of singing badly like singing out of tune just to prove to people it wasn't about the music it was about the the bhav you know yeah there's a story of uh when bhakti sedanta saraswati Thakur was leaving his body he he had um i can't i don't want to mix it up but they had someone he had someone sing shirupa manjari but i think it was sridhar maharaj he asked him to, him to sing and everyone knew in the mutt that he was the worst singer he was like not the best singer at all and so they they said uh, uh someone asked or someone said like why did he make him sing and then the the the, the other god brothers who were who were seeing the the, the idea behind what Bhakti Siddhanta was saying that for was because it was that Sridhar Marj was the most advanced person there. And it was his devotion that Bhakti Siddhanta wanted to hear, not the best singer. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So that's kind of how I feel. And it can be, um, it can be a bit of a danger zone if you don't have the right guidance, because you could start, um, 
you know, like <laughs> I remember one of my attention. exactly like I remember one of my friends. Um, he was telling me he started getting into Krishna consciousness, but he really liked drinking beer. And someone told him you should offer everything to Krishna. So <laughs> when when he started, you know, getting into bhakti, he'd be sitting there, you know, at the bar, and he'd just ordered his pint, and he'd put it on the table. And you know, start offering it to Krishna, and then you know, getting pissed. <laughs> um, so you, it's a fine balance. It's a fine balance. The the, right. the form does have to be a suitable container for the intention as well. Yeah. So yeah. you were saying you were you were writing two songs per day almost for like seven eight months. That's a that's a large number of songs. Yeah. This is actually my um. So this is my little um, notebook here, yeah, yeah. You can see it. Um, and I haven't updated it in a while, but at the back here somewhere. Yeah, so here, um, this is a little original songs um, section and uh, one, two, maybe it's just, so that's 75 and then, um, for some reason, I don't finish. There's 99 and 100 still need to be <laughs> filled in. Wow. But um, but yeah, it was like a super prolific time. And I'm not saying like they were all good, but you know, they were just like things that. No, but I mean, the sadhana of getting them out on paper that's that's hard. You know, sometimes it's just here, but then just to actually vocalize it, put it on the paper, that's a big deal. So, how many of those have you? made let's talk about more uh, currently now um you know you have your new ep uh falling upwards um did that drop already yeah so that that is out there and available for you to listen to if you'd like okay it's cool. uh it's there on itunes and spotify and youtube and uh deezer and all the other um and it's as kaylee kaylee woods right kaylee woods Kaylee Woods, yeah. K-E-L-I-W-O-O-D-S for those just listening on audio. Um, I'm going to put his Instagram handle there at the end. Uh, but tell us a little bit about, okay, out of those 9,900, whatever, 200 songs that you have, why did you choose specific ones for this and what made it special? Yeah, so like I was saying, um, one, one book that really helped me um, when I moved out of the, the ashram, helped to articulate these different struggles and, and different lessons that I was trying to reflect on um, was a book called Falling Upwards by Richard Braw. All right. Jay Jagannath and, talks about that book. Yeah. So Jay Jagannath recommended it to uh, Ananda Murari and Ananda Murari recommended it to me. And um, I've probably recommended it to like 100 people since then. Why, why is that? I mean, I, I've always heard him talking about that book, but I never got a chance to come and read it. But what is it about that book that's inspiring? Um, it just articulates the um, the spiritual journey in a way that is very kind of like poignant and easy to, to resonate with. Yeah. Um, especially I think if you're a Westerner, mm -hmm. um, and Richard Raw, he's like a, um, he's a priest, I think a Jesuit priest, but he has, he has an ability to 
like convey really deep spiritual truth um in a just a very clear way um and he'd say things like you know the closer i get to the light the more of my shadow i see right and you know these these little kind of wisdom nuggets that were like wow that's exactly how i feel yeah um and so just in these two words i felt like he captured my whole experience um of of life you know in these like 24 25 years um falling upwards it's like sometimes um you know st taking steps forward or actually taking steps backwards are actually forward in spiritual life and taking steps backwards in material life are spiritually forwards and it's like this strange dichotomy or contradiction right um and so yeah that that book really changed my life and i just wanted to share that kind of message with other people because it had helped me so much um so i thought why not try and do that in some musical form or song form and so i really wanted to put together a just a project that would take people on that journey of of falling upwards um which is kind of the journey that i i felt i went on i think a few people um could maybe uh you know uh, resonate with as well right could you uh, could you perhaps give us a sample of of one of the songs yeah i know it's uh, late there and i don't want to piss anybody off but well let's see i've got my i've got my guitar it is what's the time it's 11 11 past 11 at night so <laughs> i'll try not to be too loud okay yeah i'm gonna put you full screen here your 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 internet um is it's, it not so good? It's not so good anymore. Like it was good in the beginning and now it's like frozen. I can hear you perfectly, but the 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 video is frozen. Really? Yeah. Hmm. Um I got four bars, man. I don't know what to do about that. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, uh, you're back, you're back. But it's it's a little blurry, but I can work with that. Why don't you go for it? Yeah, let's tell us about the song first and maybe tell us the lyrics uh or something and 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 then go for it okay cool um well i think the may, maybe i won't play the whole song but yeah the first song on this little ep it's called wrong wall and so so this this thought that was shared in wrong wall upwards wrong wall yeah okay um so this this thought is that we spend our whole lives climbing a ladder you know this ladder of of material success and fame and prestige and pleasure and we get to the top of the ladder and we realize actually it was up against the wrong wall the whole time you know <laughs> i love that yeah and i was just like man that's completely how i feel um yeah. and so a lot of spiritual life is climbing back down that ladder and and deciding okay which wall do i do i put this against now um and it's really frustrating because you've you know you're already exhausted from pursuing material life so much that it's like i can't really go on anymore but but now you've managed to um to situate yourself properly and you have to start climbing again and just yeah just trying to find that um i don't know that that strength and enthusiasm to 
you know, to start all over again in a completely different direction. Starting the the climb again. Yeah, but but up the uh, up the bacti wall, you know, <laughs> the right wall. Yeah, exactly. Beautiful, love it. I love it. So we'll see. I can I can try and play a little bit. See how it okay. sounds. Yeah, yeah. Dismiss that you've come this far. You raise the bar to climb. Follow your dreams. Even if you wake up, you gave it a try. Some people can live without a dream and they die. Having lived a lie this whole time. But I've spent my whole life climbing a ladder just to realize it was up against the wrong wall all along. beautiful i love it wow i don't know how that sounds i've got a really bad it sounded fantastic yeah the mic is great what you're using that's cool i've got a bad experience with um doing music stuff online and like the internet crashes or like some (laughs) ghost comes in or something (laughs) that was really really nice so you so um i love the i love the themes that you've chosen in your songs i think they're really they can resonate with a lot of people and and that's a great way to express certain ideas and um, even philosophy and things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I love um, like Indian classical music and I love Kirtan. My favorite Kirtan is like, you know, Ayindra or just like super rag kind of melodies. Oh, really? Um, Yeah. That's I, I, I much prefer it to like Western kind of style. Right, right. Like Harry Nam kind of style. Right. But I was just thinking, you know, if I was to record, you know, the album Falling Upwards and the first track is like, Narad Muni Bajai Veena. It's like, how how are like white people going to connect to that? You know? <laughs> right, right. Um, so that was my kind of feeling is like, how can I you know, how can I express these sentiments that Bhakti Vinod Thakur is expressing in, you know, some of his bhajan, some of his writings, mm-hmm. like um, the the truth and the philosophy that's there in the Vedas, but how can I do it in in English and in a clear way and, you know, in a way that um, that is relevant? Really um, nice. So anyway, that's my that's the mission that I've embarked on. <laughs> and and so how far are you like are you gonna work on another album now or what's next? Like that's your current project, but as far as future projects. Yeah, so 
I'm, I'm in this really incredible situation where, um, like all of my dreams have come true. And, you know, like when you get to a top of, you know, when you get to the top of a mountain, it's like, oh, great, I made it. But then you look out and you see all these other different mountains to climb. And it's like, oh, man, where to go right. next? Right. So, yeah, I'm in this situation where I'm wearing different hats. Um, I wanted to to maybe share a little bit about this Mantra Roots project before we please. finish. Is that okay? Yeah, yeah, please. You can go ahead now. Cool. Because, um, yeah, this Mantra Roots project is really like uh, something that is very near and dear to my heart at the moment and um something i really feel like i can give my my life to um so i'm currently acting as kind of like a ceo for mantra roots and what mantra roots is trying to do is um so it, it's a record label and we're trying to to help create and to um you know, to distribute conscious music and, and art. But at the same time, we, we're trying to make a movement. And if you look at different record labels like Def Jam or um, Blue Note or, you know, whatever it is, yeah. um, it's not just about the music or, or the name, but it, there's a whole movement as well behind it. So... I think like there is this Bhakti Renaissance happening and really I can see something like Mantra Roots being at the, at the, at the front and really like spearheading it along with some other really incredible projects that are happening. Um, is it just a, is it just a um, label or does it do other, are there other aspects to it? So it's uh it's in Bija form. It's just a little seed at the okay. moment. Okay. Um, so yeah, at the moment we have, we have a few artists myself. There's a, a Kirtanir, uh, Radhika Das, who's also on iTunes and Spotify. And he's a great Kirtanir right. in the UK. Mind, yeah. Um, we have, uh, we've done some stuff with Vas and Keish who are in, you know, part of the Achuta crew, amazing musicians and Kirtaniers. Um, I'm just looking at their Instagram right now. Vas and Keish? No, the the Mantra Roots. I, I oh, put okay. the I put the the handle there, and so um, just yes. The... So so we're like a startup record label, and um, yeah, just really trying to share conscious music and um, yeah, trying to articulate these these truths to people mm -hmm. um, in a, a relevant form. Um, but we really want it to grow into something bigger and we want to start doing retreats. We want it to be like an educational um, platform where people can come and learn about Bhakti, come and learn about creativity, come and learn about an alternative alternative lifestyle and really use it as a platform to uh, to share Krishna in a way that's like attractive and fresh and like not in the 1980s, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Very cool. Um, it, I find it really interesting. Like you have, like you, you have this old school part of you about book distribution and thing, but then you have this new school part of you as well. It's, it's a really interesting uh, dynamic that you have there of, cause sometimes you only, you see devotees can be very 
um, black or white in some sort of way, not in a bad way, but in a way like, okay, there, I'm only into this and I'm not into this, but you're into like a bunch of things. And I like that. Cause, cause Bhakti is timeless, you know, like, yeah. like a flower, like a rose is always going to be beautiful. It's not like it's only going to be beautiful in the eighties and not in 2022. <laughs> like, like a flower is just always going to be appreciated. Yeah. And you, that's, that's how I see Krishna consciousness. Yeah. It's it's timeless and, and beautiful. But um but the form can change, you know. Sometimes, you know, one flower might be favored over another, but you know, similarly one style might, you know, be favored over over another style. And I feel like it's really our not our duty, but our you know, our obligation as people that are trying to share Krishna consciousness with people. Um you know, we need to adapt and we need to change with the times. And, you know, we really need to um, not stagnate and get stuck. Um, so you yeah. think you think that you feel that music, creative music, that's what's going on in Mantra Roots. This is a, a great way of, of sharing Krishna Bhakti with others. Yeah, I think uh, the way I see it is, you know, book distribution for me was powerful because you stop one person, you you give them a book and you know maybe the the exchange is fruitful but it's limited whereas if you write one good song that has a strong message and um, a really powerful intention then that song can travel all over the world to you know seven eight billion people yeah and you know perhaps like change many 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 lives simultaneously Mm -hmm. and we've seen it happen and, and what my real my real mission is if you go on the news you see how prolific the material world is when it comes to you know to to sharing what what's going on and on planet earth you know mm -hmm. um every five minutes there's an update about covid or about the war or about this thing or that thing and there's also news from the spiritual world that should be shared, you know, yeah. and my wish is that um, us Bhakti creatives can be just as prolific as the material world when it comes to sharing, you know, sharing news about Krishna and about consciousness and about the spiritual world and these incredible pastimes and culture and color and mantras and, you know, um, there's there's so much there to to give people and it's infinitely more interesting and and persuasive and beautiful than anything you'll read on you know bbc or cbs or whatever yeah know? beautifully expressed yeah so did you say you were did you say you were 25 26 now 20 <laughs> unfortunately you're very very wise for someone your age not that i mean i'm 10 years older than you but that's very you're a rare person i think i mean it really came out in this in what you're saying today and i really i'm really glad we caught it all this stuff what you were saying beautiful yeah yeah well i i really want to like before we finish just take the opportunity to invite people on board because um Sure. We've got an incredible team and we're just starting. Um, at the moment, we're like, we're mostly guys and there's one girl 
involved who is also called Kaylee and um, she's 16 but she's like about 35 and uh, she's helping a lot but we really we're looking for we're looking for creatives you know we're looking for um, people that feel like they they want to align with a mission and they have something to offer you know whether you're a musician whether you're a producer whether you're an artist whether you're a writer even if you're into like social media or admin or networking or whatever it is um yeah please get in touch with me because even if nothing comes from it i just like making friends and uh yeah it's i just feel like iscon as a whole will be a lot stronger if you know these communities that are all over the world come together to support one another yeah um anyway so just a Beautiful. little plug but so if you'd like to get in touch with uh kaylee khan and uh, you can get in touch with them Muncher Roots is there on the screen at Muncher Roots. That's that's their Instagram handle. And Kaylee Kananas is here at Kaylee, K-E-L-I underscore underscore Woods, W-O-O-D-S. That's, uh, you can find him on Instagram. His music is all on Spotify and iTunes and other places. I, I bet if you Google his name, you'll find it there. Uh, Kaylee, do you want to add some parting words for our for our listeners? But I know you I know you said to get in touch with about um, – about getting uh, in contact with uh, Munter Roots and things, but anything else you'd like to add there? Um, well, n- not really. I'm just, I'm super grateful for this opportunity. I've been watching your podcast for, I don't know, like probably two, two years now. Um, and I think this, this podcast and what you've done here, Namras is just a really powerful example of, um, of, uh, how we can change and how we can like shake things up a little bit in uh in a micro way and a, a macro way and it's just really nice to be part of it all and thank you yeah i guess the only thing i would add is just as i said if you feel inspired by anything that we've spoken about today then please get in touch and let's let's connect and uh let's change the world we really need Krishna consciousness now more than ever. So um, awesome. So if you'd like to get in touch with Kaylee Conan, if you're a musician, creative person, want to just talk to him, make a friend, please get in touch with him. He's, uh, you know, I, I always interacted with you online, but I just, for the first time got to talk with you in person. I think, uh, you know, this is the beginning of a wonderful friendship. I really, I really resonated with a lot of what you're saying and uh, really respect you a lot. And thank you for doing what you do and, you know, just putting your neck out there and, and uh, be creative for, for a higher purpose, that higher intention. I just absolutely love that. Thanks. I think you're also a really nice person, Namra. <laughs> thank you. And I'm looking forward to meeting you very soon if you come to, uh, to our side of the pond here. But um, thanks again for our listeners. For listening, please like and subscribe. Please go ahead and uh, subscribe to Kaylee Kanana's uh, Instagram there and also Mantra Roots. And also get in touch with them, like I said. Uh, have a good night, everyone. And Kaylee, stay on um, another minute. Okay, cool. Hare Krishna. Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna.